We're back with another program on herbs and bees. In this show, we'll continue our exploration of the wonderful world of herbs with a look at five fascinating plants that help flavor our food, soothe our throats, calm our stomachs, and lift our moods. Our program on bees received a lot of interest, so we're going to hear from beekeeper Tara Chapman on how you can go about starting your own hives. Let's begin with Robin Clark, who's a botanist and herbalist. Robin grew up with a grandfather who taught her about plants and herbs, and an aunt who taught her about making herbal soaps. She went on to get extensive formal education in herbalism, followed by a degree in botany. Robin is owner of the Herb Room in Wimberley, Texas, and that's where she shared some of her vast knowledge about herbs. Can you start by defining what is a herb? Sure. An herb, um, basically, general terminology of an herb would be any plant that's going to be used for food, for flavoring, for medicine, or for fragrance, uh, much for their savory or aromatic uh, properties. Um, A botanical uh, herbal definition would be any seed-bearing plant which does not have a woody stem and it dies down to the ground after flowering. A general uh, herbalism definition uh, for me is that, uh, you know, herbalism is really concerned with the art and the science with herbs and their uses. And this is in particular towards their health enhancing properties and functions. Um, In medicinal or spiritual uses, any parts of the plant might be considered an herb, including the leaves, the roots, the flower seeds, the root bark, the inner bark and cambium, as well as the resin and the fruit, the pericarp. In our last program, Robin talked about herbs we use in cooking to flavor our food and to provide useful vitamins and minerals. Some of those herbs do double duty because they can be used therapeutically in cough syrups and the like. The herbs we'll explore today are largely used for their therapeutic benefits. Some of the herbs, and these are going to be some herbs that you might not commonly see, so we're going to move away a little bit from culinary medicinals into, um, you know, teas that you can incorporate culinarily. However, they are delicious prepared as a tea, and they also um, have very, very uh, wonderful nutritional and therapeutic benefits as well. Uh, So one of the ones I wanted to start with was lemongrass. And lemongrass, um, you might know, it does look like a a grass. It's got these beautiful blades and it has these stalks. Um, It's a nice tender perennial. It can get up to three feet. I've even seen some uh, higher. I use the leaves and the stalks. The leaves mainly in the teas. Um, Stalks are great for cooking and adding to soups and stews. Um, They kind of have a, a papery, they're a papery hard stalk. Um, wonderful flavor, very, very high in essential oils. So um, I do use a uh, lemongrass essential oil, very wonderful um, as a bug repellent, natural bug repellent. Mm -hmm. So I do have um, some wonderful organic lemongrass um, essential oil and 
herb as well here. So when you, when you use the stalk, how mm-hmm. do you do you slice it? Or I slice you... it, yeah, and it's kind of um, rough. It kind of if you look at an onion, it's a it's it, it has those layers to it. But this is going to be almost uh, fibrous or tough. Yeah. Those stalks. Right. So you're just going to cut them up. I sometimes slice them um, lengthwise and then freeze them and then put those into stews and soups in the winter time. Uh, wonder, wonderful, um, this is a, a northern India native uh, plant to northern India, but does well here and very deer resistant. Deers do not like lemongrass and I love to use lemongrass in companion planting. So um, it because I can hide some of the herbs, I don't want them to get to amongst the lemongrass. They do not like lemongrass. I have not had my lemongrass touched. Um, even in the most severe droughts here. So, <laughs> so they are a wonderful, wonderful herb. Um, just provides good drainage for it. Um, try to protect it from the north winds. Um, give it some good mulch, but it's it's a great landscape plant. Um, I also I love to use this herb, um, the stalks also in stir fries. Mm-hmm. Wonderful with veg vegetables. Um, love with zucchini. Yeah. Uh all sorts of vegetables. So stir fries. I like to do coconut milk, uh, marinades uh, with the with mm-hmm. the lemon uh, and ginger and the garlic. All those wonderful things we talked about. It's really predominant in green curries. Mm-hmm. You're gonna find that um, wonderful to add into vinegars, homemade vinegars, um, oxymels, compotes, fruit compotes. It's really kind of uh, so versatile and so underutilized. Um, I like to use it fresh, dried, freezed. Um, and a wonderful thing about it as well, not only this wonderful essential oil that um, deters insects and is a good bug repellent, so even planting it in the garden, if you're, you know, rub it around, you're going to get that that good um, effect of that. But it's also um, really rich in vitamin C and vitamin A. So it's very good for the cold and flu season and tastes wonderfully in teas. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My guest is Robin Clark, who's a botanist, herbalist, and owner of the Herb Room in Wimberley. Um, And you were just uh, going through a list of some herbs that we use uh, in teas, but also in other ways, uh, just to eat. Mm -hmm. So uh, we kind of stopped at lemongrass. Mm -hmm. What's next? Yeah. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful little plant in the mint family. And it's also known as lemon balm. And how you uh, recognize plants in the mint family is going to be that square stem. So if you are um, interested in identifying any plant that's in the mint family, it's going to have that square stem all the way around. Uh, lemon balm is a beautiful, beautiful perennial. It has uh, wonderful in the garden. does really um, like our uh Texas shade in the afternoon um, can be invasive in the right condition. So I haven't had my lemon balm mm-hmm. become invasive here um, in Wimberley yeah. growing it. Um, really, really a wonderful uh, beekeeping plant. Melissa is Greek. The name Melissa is the genus of lemon balm. Mm-hmm. And that's also uh, Greek for bee. So many beekeepers uh, might be interested in exploring um, growing yeah. Melissa or lemon balm in their gardens. It's a very, I use it uh, medicinally in, in teas. Um, it's a part of my organic tea bar here. I have this available. It's really good for the nervous system. Very gentle uh, and it's a good refreshing tea tonic. It really has a nice lemony um, scent and a very wonderful lemony um 
lemon taste. It's a great herb for children and for people of all ages. Uh, it really gently brings down fevers and it really lifts the spirits. So it's a natural antidepressant and I do um, have the essential. I don't have it available. It's a very expensive essential oil, yeah. but uh, it's wonderful uh, to use in all, all forms of depression or anxiety. It's very good for the heart. I love to use the leaves in salads. I make a wonderful uh, marinade. I call it honeymoon chicken. And I put cinnamon and I put lemon balm and I put um, pepper and a lot of different spices and marinate it with vinegar and honey. And it's amazing. I also wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about some plants that you might not be familiar with. Um, in your garden, but you might see out on the trail here, maybe over in uh, San Marcos along the waterways, are gonna be elderflowers, elderflowers and elderberries. Um, we have some of these growing. These are gonna be a deciduous shrub or a small tree. Mm -hmm. Very wonderful for our native, uh, our native environment. Uh, great for uh, birds. They feed off of the berries, great for uh, butterflies, insects, a wonderful plant uh, to uh, cultivate in the garden as well. Uh, but you might not be as familiar with it. I use uh, both the elderflowers and the berries. Um, there is uh, elderberry or elderflower wine. There's also an elderflower uh, liqueur that's mm -hmm. available. Um, but not only is it is it wonderful uh, for our native landscape and, and for our uh, our gardens, it's also really good for us. Uh, I use it in my practice extensively um, for in my teas and just as a great medicine to have on hand. Very very safe, very rich in um, vitamin C and vitamin A. And uh, clinical studies have shown that uh, sambucal is the main active constituent that resides in elder berries. And in the elderberries, I'm sure you might have seen on the market, and what I do have here are some elderberry syrups yeah. um, and tinctures that are really, really wonderful um, for the cold and flu season. And clinically, uh, elderberries, elderberry um has been shown to reduce your cold by half um, or cold or flu by half. So I think that's pretty amazing um, antiviral antibiotic effects of, uh, of elderberry. And it's a good, X is a good, I called it kind of a screen for bugs and germs. And um, just when you're around other people that have colds and flus, yeah. great uh, for parents out there with the start of the school <laughs> to get, you know, to start yeah. a little bit. I make a wonderful elderberry syrup that I store in the fridge and I pour it over my yogurt. I pour it over mm. my pancakes, waffles, mm. um, pour it actually into, uh, like I said earlier, with the, with the ginger. It's wonderful with the little ginger and elderberry and sparkling water. Yeah. So you're getting that yeah. great medicinal tasty. It is mm -hmm. very delicious. It's a very delicious fruit. Um, I use the flowers uh, a little bit differently. I use the flowers... Um, for bringing down fevers. It's very gentle, uh, really great for the nervous system, uh, really kind of can promote uh, can promote uh, getting rid of a, a high fever. So right. it's a wonderful medicinal plant. And I encourage you to go out and see if you can maybe see this beautiful uh, shrub out on the waterways out here. Yeah. 
No, but now, aren't there parts of the plant that we shouldn't use? There are. There are. We do not want to be using um, the stems or the leaves of the elderberries. So uh, when you are looking at um, the plant, you're going to be wanting to either harvest the berries or harvest the flowers. Right. Mm -hmm. As Robin says, it's important to remember that with elderberry plants, only the flowers and the blue-black berries are safe to eat once cooked. The leaves, stems, and the rest of the plant are toxic. When we return, Robin will tell us about two interesting plants, agarita, whose berries you can eat raw or cooked, if you can get them before the birds do, and stinging nettles, which are loaded with vitamins and minerals. You're listening to Mothering Earth. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us, we'll be right back. We're back now with Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and my guest is Robin Clark, who is a botanist and herbalist. And Robin, you've been telling us about herbs we can use to flavor food, but that also have medicinal properties. We talked about lemongrass, lemon balm, and elderberries. You have two more plants for us now. What's the first one? It's something that we out here in the hill country know a lot about, and we see it a lot. Uh, it's called agarita. And agarita is a wonderful little ivy-like plant. It's an evergreen, um, evergreen shrub. It's also known um, as the babysitter plant. A lot of deers and a lot of small animals will park their babies underneath um, this thorny tree as they go and harvest. So it's it's the, kind of the babysitter plant for all of our um, our little native critters that we have here. Um, while the mom is off foraging. So a uh, wonderful, wonderful plant agarita is here. I love to use the, the berries, uh, make a beautiful, tasty jelly out of the berries. And I actually just pick the red, the red ripe berries walking by and we'll eat them. They are delicious, very rich in vitamin C. Um, that you're going to get this. And now the major habitat for um, agarita is going to be here in Texas. New Mexico and Arizona. And we have an endemic species that grows just here in, in the hill country here. It's called Mahonia swayzei. And it's a little smaller version. Uh, I always recommend with endemic species to let those species be because they only grow here. Um, and to go ahead and focus on the other agaritas that we have here, if you're interested in, in harvesting or using those berries. Another way that I use um, this shrub or agarita in, in my practice is medicinally. And as an herbalist, um, the stems and the roots are very, very rich in berberine. And berberine is the, the major constituent that's going to um, help anything to do with the stomach. I use it for acid reflux. I um, have an extract here that um, is made locally. 
And I also, uh, it's a great antibacterial. A lot of clinical studies have shown um, these antiviral compounds uh, help with digestion and really other stomach issues uh, that you have. So it's, it's wonderful for that. I got one more herb and it's a, actually a really important one. It's going to be something that you don't want to brush along on the trail. Uh, it is also known, it's known as nettles and also known as stinging nettles. Um, stinging nettles are just what they sound like. If you do brush along them on the trail, you uh, will get a little rash or a little sting. However, when you cook the plant um, and you apply heat to it, it... Um, takes out the sting. So there's no more stingers on there. So they deactivate the stingers on the, the plant. So uh, st stinging nettles or nettles are very, um, they're a great perennial. Um, you're, you know, it's not something that's typically cultivated, though I'm going to be starting to cultivate some of yeah. mine because I use it so often um, medicinally and even culinarily. Uh, in my practice, and there are ways to harvest them um, that you can reduce any sort of sting with Thick nettles. Gloves. Mm -hmm. Thick gloves. <laughs> Thick gloves, you're right, yeah. Now, nettles are, are, are really one of the highest sources of chlorophyll. So if you're looking at chlorophyll, um, you know, you have blue-green algae uh, that's really the highest. Now, Nettles are going to be up there in the top five as being one of the highest sources of chlorophyll. You'll notice it too um, if you come and enjoy a nice glass of nettle tea that I have here. It's a nice uh, green, green color. And it's a very, very powerful antihistamine and very, very powerful um, anti-inflammatory. I use it um, here for allergy season. And I have many forms available here, dried, uh, tinctured uh, extracts, etc. for using that. Um, makes a delicious tea. Uh, externally, it's a great hair tonic. And uh, I use it um, as a hair tonic to invigorate and stimulate hair growth. It's really nice. It's a nutritive tonic. So this is one of those herbs that I've been making this casserole. It's a wild herb casserole. And I put nettles and dandelion greens and mix that up with some oregano and a uh, little cheese, maybe some eggs, almost like a, yeah. you know, frittata. But it's absolutely delicious. And it's so, it's a nutrition powerhouse yeah. um, of what it offers. Wow. Minerals, vitamins A and C, silica, um, it's real habitat is really throughout the temperate regions, but um, it's a wonderful, wonderful medicinal and culinary uh, spice and or tea. So it's a green flavor, so it wouldn't be so much of a spice. But one of the um, one of the main most interesting um, aspects about nettles for me as an herbalist is that this was really uh, nettle was used in weaving before it became known in herbal healing. In fact, archaeologists discovered nettle fabric burial shrouds at Bronze Age sites. So I am fascinated by that. And in World War I, nettle cloth was substituted when cotton was in short supply in Germany. Fabric made from a stinging plant does seem unlikely. But in fact, nettle cloth is seen by some as an ecologically friendly fabric from a plant that grows easily without the pesticides and herbicides that are used to cultivate more common cloth fibers, such as cotton. And nettle cloth is said to be silky smooth. We're taking a turn now from herbs to bees. 
Our program on bees with beekeeper Tara Chapman of Two Hives Honey in Austin, Texas, resulted in questions about how to become a beekeeper and about the bee product called propolis. Here's Tara. Propolis is really interesting. Um, It's also antimicrobial. So it is a substance that um, bees go out and gather. It's like a resin. And they're going to gather it from certain trees, produce it, and they bring it back and they mix it with a little bit of honey. It becomes very sticky. It's a brown uh, sap looking material. And they're going to coat their entire hive with it. Bees are very clean. Um, So they coat their hive with it. And if there's any little cracks or holes, they'll fill it up with propolis. They glue everything together. And so if you've ever watched a beekeeper work, we use what's called a hive tool, sort of a a lever wedge sort of tool. We have to use that because you can't generally go up and just pull a lid off a hive. It's glued down. We have to pry it open with that hive tool. Um, And so again, as I mentioned, propolis is antimicrobial. And so beekeepers will gather that and you can make it into a sort of tincture. You can put some alcohol with it. And again, it's used just like an antibiotic for burns or wounds, or it can be taken internally if you're not feeling very well. Um, now, if I wanted to go further and I was interested in keeping bees <laughs> myself, what, how would I start? Yeah, I think that you definitely want to educate yourself a little bit first. Um, Of course, depending on where you live, there may be rules and regulations you want to follow. But in general, Texas is very friendly to beekeepers. Austin certainly is, and the surrounding counties are very friendly um, to beekeepers. There's few, if any, regulations. So check that first. The best way to learn to keep bees is from an existing beekeeper. So you can join all of the counties um, here in Central Texas have beekeeping clubs. You can go check a few of those out. I always recommend people take a class. Um, we do introductory classes. There's lots of other folks that do them as well. Um, but it's definitely worth a little bit of investment um, up front to find out if it's right for you before you proceed. If you're looking for something to read, um, I have a few things I can recommend. I hate the name of this book, but it really is the best I've found. So The Idiot's Guide to Beekeeping is my favorite. Not to be confused with The Dummy's Guide. I don't like that one as much. Um, The Idiot's Guide to Beekeeping, awful name, but a great book because I think it breaks things down in a very simple, straightforward manner. It's easy to flip through and, and get to the chapter that explains what you're looking for. And finally, it's one of the books on the market that actually, um, uh, advocates for natural and organic beekeeping even though it's not marketed as an organic beekeeping book i was quite surprised to find that it that it is um, if you're a bit geekier like i am and you really want to get into the science and you want something that's a bit more um, informative of course informative generally means dense the beekeeper's handbook is phenomenal but it is very challenging to understand so that might maybe should be your second beekeeping right. book <laughs> right that's the advanced course yes absolutely okay. so why might you recommend keeping bees so uh people keep bees for a lot of reasons um i do a ton of um classes and lessons and we take care of bees for folks and i've got reasons that run the gamut but um you know for folks that are big into gardening it's you will certainly find an improvement in your garden my first bee site that that neighbor that took a chance on me and let me put bees out so four times the number of peaches his first year than he'd ever seen and then the squirrels ate every one because he was not prepared <laughs> for the number of peaches that he was going to his tree was going to bear um but obviously if you know f- uh, to help uh, help with the garden um 
I have yet to find someone that has come to a class and has walked away bored. And I don't think that says anything about my teaching style and a lot more about the subject matter. They're incredibly fascinating. And so, you know, if you're interested in nature or you want your kids to be interested in nature, um, I think bees are a great, great way to introduce them to that. I also think that learning about beekeeping is, you know, this is sort of how, how I get you. You know, I let you taste some honey and you love honey and oh man, that's so good. And then I tell you a few fun facts about bees and that's really fascinating and you get excited. And then at the end of the day, you don't realize it, but you've learned so much more about agriculture and about our food system. And you're going to have a better appreciation for how hard it is to produce food, right? And that is a good thing, decreasing that gap between consumer and producer. So if you're interested in that, beekeeping is a great way to do it right in your backyard. You know, unlike other farming endeavors, there's no daily maintenance um, and you don't require, you know, cattle. You can't do that in your, in your backyard. And so just a little bit of space and you can you can really experience, you know, what that's like, how to produce your own food and, and enjoy that appreciation. If that appeals to you, you can contact Tara Chapman at twohiveshoney.com. I'd like to thank my two guests, Tara Chapman of Two Hives Honey and Robin Clark of The Herb Room, who spoke about herbs. I'd love to hear from you, so please send any comments or suggestions for future shows to me at gardentoad at vcs.com. That's gardentoad, one word, at v-c-y-e-s dot com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth.